You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. A wonderful passage from uh, God's Word. So if you please turn, if you have your Bible, to Romans 8, Romans 8, uh, chapter 28, through to verse 39. I'm sure a passage that is familiar to many people. This is the word of the Lord. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you in the silence of this place, so ever aware of our own weakness, our own fragility, our own waywardness and sinfulness, and yet so aware of your majesty and your greatness and your glory and all that you have done for us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we come to you now and as we seek to 
sit under your word of all truth. We pray that your word this very night might be a true blessing to our souls. We pray that we would take it as the dearest treasure that there is to our hearts, and particularly the promises that you reveal to us within your word, that we might be transformed and that we might live our lives to the glory of your name. For we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I was reading a wee while back that apparently during the initial phase of the construction of the bridge in San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, the, the kind of landmark bridge that's over there, apparently there were no safety devices used. And what happened was that apparently 23 men actually fell to their deaths whilst they were working on the bridge. And so what they did was they then put in place this gigantic big safety net and um, after which they could have done that first of all but they put it in place after these men had sadly lost their lives but after they put this in place another 10 men fell from the bridge while they were working on it thankfully for them obviously they fell to their safety because they were caught in the net but what I think was quite significant about all of this was that apparently after this safety net was installed productivity on the bridge increased by 25%. In other words, because these men now had assurance of their safety and their security, because they no longer had to be preoccupied in a sense or fearful about what might happen to them as they worked on the bridge, they now felt a newfound sense of liberty to serve and to work wholeheartedly to give themselves totally to this cause of building the bridge. And I mentioned that this evening because it strikes me that the same thing is very true in the Christian life. If we're going to live for the Lord our God with a genuine sense of joy and confidence in him and with a zeal for the gospel, with a sense of liberty then it will surely only be because day after day in our lives, we're coming back to the beating heart of the Christian gospel. We're coming back and we're reminding ourselves and reminding one another in a fellowship such as this of the gift of his grace and the security, the treasure that is ours through faith and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I think is so helpful about this familiar and powerful and great passage in Romans 8 is that Paul, the apostle, he's not only reminding us here of the security that is ours through faith in Christ, but really the crux of the passage is that he's spelling out for us here precisely why this security is such a certainty. In other words, if we were to pose a question just above the passage or before the passage, to which Paul then goes on to give his answer, the question would maybe be something like, why is it, Paul, that this life, this life that has been given to us as a gift of God's mercy and his kindness and his grace, this life that has been made new 
by the Holy Spirit of God, this life that is now trusting in the person of Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Why is this life something that is so concrete and sure? Why is it something that is robust, that is a certainty for the true believer? And so Paul gives us his answer. And he basically gives us here four arguments, four explanations, if you like, for the Christian security. And so tonight I want to just work through them one at a time. First of all, he reminds us of the power of God to protect us in Christ. The power of God to protect us in Christ. Look at verse 31. Now, the context here, just before I get to that, is Paul has just begun this great passage by stating the fact of God's commitment to working for the good of all who are his, verses 29 and 30. We'll come back to that in just a second. He's then outlined the fact that our salvation is purely a work of God's grace, his sovereign election, verses 29 and 30. And then in 31, he kind of summarizes what he's been saying to this point, and he sums up the first basis of this confidence, of this security. What then shall we say in response to this? Or what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, clearly, when Paul says who can be against us, he's not suggesting there that to be a Christian means that we'll never be faced with any opposition in life. That would be clearly to deny the testimony of Scripture itself. Actually, that would be to deny the context of the rest of this chapter because Paul has said in verse 18 beforehand, he said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so this is not some sort of first century version of the prosperity gospel that Paul's preaching that makes, you know, the the Christian life out to be a kind of hunky-dory walk in the park. Suffering and persecution is the context here. It's it's an ever-present reality. But, he's saying, in light of the fact that Almighty God is for us in Christ, what possible significance What possible threat can any opposition have to our standing in him? And I suppose there's two things here. There's both a a great encouragement, but there's also a big challenge. The encouragement, well, it's the classic kind of greater to lesser argument. He's simply saying that in all the times of opposition, potential hostility and difficulty that you could and probably will face if you are walking with the Lord Jesus, if you're someone who seeks to live for him and to stand for him in what is ultimately a rebellious and hostile world, he's saying, keep in mind that there is simply nothing in this world, whether it be a person, whether it be a gang, an army, a town, an entire nation, that could ever rival the power of the one true God who is on your side. And so he's saying to belong to this God in Christ is to belong to one who is always greater. He is always more powerful. 
He is always above everything that could ever threaten us in this lifetime. That's important. But then secondly, there's surely also a challenge within that, is there not? Because if we're being honest with one another, no matter how much we might know intellectually in our minds, no matter how much we might trust in the reality of God's omnipotence, his his unlimited power, the reality is when we're actually faced with these trials and heartaches and setbacks and opposition and difficulty in our lives, well, that's another thing altogether, isn't it? In other words, to use a, a kind of extreme example, if you will, if a Christian in Iran is facing persecution and possibly even execution on account of his faith in the Lord Jesus, then just knowing of God's all-powerful nature and his power over the regime that is persecuting this man is probably not in and of itself going to be enough to give that person or even us the quiet sense of security and assurance and confidence that Paul is ultimately trying to drive us to here in this passage. And so there's something else. There is something else that is required and that is needed to be known in our Christian lives. And the place where we see that something else is in these great words of verse 28, where Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What an amazing statement of Scripture that is, one of the great promises of the Bible. Someone says, in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. All things. In other words, friends, what he's saying here, if we put these verses together, is that the first key, in a sense, to understanding this security and treasure that is ours in Christ, especially when we're on the battlefield of life and we're hard-pressed on all sides, is to not only remember the all-powerful nature of God, the fact that He is able to defeat absolutely everything that could ever threaten you and I in this lifetime, but our true security lies in our ability to exercise our faith such that we trust and we remain focused on the sovereignty of God over all of those things. We must trust in the fact that every single thing that can arise cannot arise unless God first allows it. And if it does arise, no matter how painful and how perplexing and how bewildering and upsetting that thing might be at the time, we must remember, we must remember that this God is constantly and consistently and faithfully committed to working that thing for our eternal good. One lady who knew this great doctrine very well in her own life was Corrie ten Boom. She was a Dutch Christian who spent years 
rescuing the Jews from the Nazis during the war. But eventually, of course, she was captured herself and she spent time in one of the death camps where her sister actually died and she lost many friends and other members of her family. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And she wrote these great words in her poem, The Weaver. She said, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oftentimes he weaveth sorrow. And I, in foolish pride, forget that he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Dear friend, whatever trauma and difficulty and upsetting circumstance you face this evening and you will face in life, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, know this, in all things, God is working for your good. Secondly, Paul reminds us of the costliness of our salvation in Christ. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now, to get to the full weight of of this argument that Paul's making, I think it's helpful just to have in our minds another great verse of Paul's, and it's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, where he says this, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Then he says this, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, Clearly, the context there is slightly different. Paul is urging the believers in that case in Corinth to see the importance of giving themselves fully to the honor of the Lord in light of this grace and this security that we're speaking about here and that we're looking at in Romans. But the basis of his instruction there, you are not your own, you were bought at a price is directly relevant to what he's saying here in Romans 8. Because what he's saying, in effect, is he's saying the second basis of this Christian security is that the price God paid in order that he could purchase you, in order that he could own you and save you, was so immeasurably high that it is simply unthinkable that he would not, having purchased you at this price, make sure that you were granted all that he bought you for and all that you need in this life to do his will. Most significantly, the treasure of life in his kingdom. I suppose there's a common logic there, isn't there? If the, you know, the amount of store that we put on something 
is to a large extent determined by maybe what that thing has cost us. And so to use a kind of trivial materialistic example, if I was to purchase a car down at the scrapyard for a hundred pounds, I'm not going to be quite so concerned about a little scratch or a dent on that car or even losing the car completely as I would be if I just spent my whole life savings on a bright red Ferrari Testarossa. Would I not be more concerned and more precious about that car, given that it had cost me so much? And so in the same way, Paul is saying, how much more will God be willing to guarantee our inheritance and all that we need in this life to do his will when he has paid the price of his only son precisely in order that he might give us these things. In the history of the world, there has never been a greater price paid for anything in the world than the death of the Son of God on Calvary's cross. And because he has paid this price in the past, in history, it is simply unthinkable that God would allow the person he has purchased and genuinely brought to a saving knowledge of his son to simply slip away from him. That is why Peter says it is an inheritance that cannot perish spoil or fade. It is kept in heaven for you. Third, Paul speaks of the judging and the justifying authority of Christ. Verse 33, he says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Later, who is he that condemns Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, let's go back to the question. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now, we know, don't we, there are several ways that we can be accused or we can be called into question in this life. First of all, we know that Satan himself is described in the scriptures as the accuser. And so one of his primary objectives in life is to destabilize God's children, God's people. One of the primary things he does is he likes to take us back to past sin, sin we've repented of. Say, how can you be a Christian if you did such a thing? How can you be a Christian if you behaved in that way those years ago or you said that thing? Second, we also know that as Christians living in a fallen world, we'll also face accusation and hostility and slander at the hands of fallen people simply because maybe our stand for Jesus Christ and his gospel is something that is countercultural. It is often seen as an offense. And so sometimes those people might try to undermine or bring false accusations against us so as to trip us up, so as to discredit our testimony. But then thirdly, there's not only the false accusation that comes from both the devil and at the hands of other people, 
there's also the great sense of disquiet that comes upon any Christian when we are rightly convicted of our own sin. There is nothing more unsettling, is there, than that feeling of bowing before a holy and almighty God and realizing that on account of our sinfulness, in and of ourselves, we simply do not have a leg to stand on. And so what is the answer to all of this? How are we going to live in the world where all of these things are a reality? How are we going to maintain a sense of joy and confidence and security and assurance in the face of a devil who accuses constantly, a world that bears false testimony, and then on top of all of that, the true reality of our own sinfulness? How is it going to be possible to walk through life in the face of these things without feeling oppressed and totally overwhelmed and despairing? Well, Paul's answer is very simple. He says, it is God who justifies. And not only does he remind us that God alone is our justifier, he reminds us again of the basis on which we are already justified. Who is he that condemns? Then this, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the only basis on which we can know this security and assurance when we're faced with false accusation, doubts of others, conviction of past sin that has been repented of, is on the basis that the only one in the universe who has the authority to rightly condemn us for those errors, is also the one who has already in the past done everything necessary to clear us of our guilt. Not only that, but he's continuing to testify on our behalf. Because where is the Lord Jesus tonight, friends? Where is he? Is he in the grave? He is the risen Lord. He has ascended. He is at the right hand of the Father He is our intercessor, our great high priest. He is our advocate, testifying on our behalf, even when our heads hit the pillow this evening. A man called Sinclair once said, there is no more common reason for lack of assurance than a wrong understanding of justification by faith. And that is precisely what Paul is driving us to here. Not just here, but in this whole letter to the Romans. He's saying, remember, remember, especially when your sense of security and assurance is weak, when the doubts and the fears are coming in and threatening your life. He's saying, remember that the only one who has the authority to condemn you is the one who has done everything necessary to clear you of your guilt. And finally, Paul speaks to us of the constancy of God's love 
for his elect people in Christ, the constancy of his love for his people in Christ. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Words, solemn words from Psalm 44. And there again is the reality check, isn't it? He's, he, he's basically saying, as Christians, as people who live this distinct life for Christ and by Christ and by God's grace, we're, we're basically considered as worth, in the eyes of the world, nothing more than a sheep awaiting slaughter. What did he say elsewhere? We are the refuse of the world. The scum of the earth. There is a little reality check for the seeker-friendly movement. But no, he says. In other words, even in spite of that context, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? How? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just two things to notice here in closing tonight. The first thing is that Paul's final argument here to underline this, this great treasure, this security is very simple, isn't it? He's simply saying that to be in Christ is to be the object of a covenant love that is so continuous, it is so consistent and unbreakable and steadfast and sure that there is simply nothing in life, in death, or after death that could possibly extinguish it throughout all of eternity. That is the wonder of this covenant love that God has for his elect children. Those who have fallen under his grace, born again, who have repented of sin and turned and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But then secondly, notice that Paul's not happy just to leave it at that. He doesn't just want us to know the fact of this promise. He also wants us to know the reason for this promise, the basis on which this love is an unbreakable love. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through him who loved us. In other words, what he's saying here, I want you just to try to see the logic here in what he's saying. He's saying the basis on which we can be objects of this eternal and unbreakable love. In other words, the basis on which this, this kind of love is possible in the first place is on the basis that before we were even born, all of these possible dangers, these troubles of this fallen world, of which Paul gives some examples here, hardship, persecution, nakedness, danger, and so on. All of these ills 
were effectively thrown at the person of Jesus Christ throughout his life, but most especially in his death on the cross. Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, was not only considered as a sheep to be slaughtered, he was slaughtered. And yet, because he not only submitted to these things, but was then raised victoriously from the dead, thereby conquering and defeating all of these things, we, in him, are therefore more than conquerors. We are therefore able to be the recipients of a love that can no longer be extinguished by any of these things. To belong to Jesus Christ is to belong to a conqueror. It is to belong to one who has overcome, he has defeated, and he has destroyed every single thing that could have otherwise separated us from the love of God. Most significantly, our final enemy, death itself. Do you see tonight the wonder of the treasure and the security that is granted to us by grace and through faith in Christ, that is ours this evening if we are a Christian, and that is being offered, it is being handed to you. If you're not a Christian, it is available to you by turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, by casting yourself upon him. We are secure in him because of almighty God's all-powerful and sovereign character over every single thing that could ever destroy us. We're secure in him because of the immeasurable price that was paid on the cross of Calvary, the precious blood of the Lamb as he laid down his life as he succumbed to death on that cross for your personal sin. We're secure in him because the only one who has the right to condemn us and who should condemn us for our depravity and wickedness is the one who has died in our place for our sins to justify us. And we're secure in him because to be in Christ, to belong to him, is to be the object of a love that can never end. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the captain of our salvation. He is the shepherd of our souls. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Love him. Follow him. Submit to him. Obey him. Hunger and thirst after him. And worship him. Because in Christ, this God will never fail you. Let's pray.
how deep the Father's love for us, that you would not spare your own Son, but that you would give him up for us all. How will you not graciously give us all things? Father, forgive our sins. Forgive us for sometimes spending too long looking inwardly. Forgive us for pride. Forgive us for failing to look upwardly at the one who not only laid down his life for the sheep, but who reigns victoriously over all things. Lord, grant that all your children this night would be greatly blessed and would treasure these promises and these wonderful truths that Jesus Christ, you, would be our greatest treasure in life. Save us from idolatry. Lead us in the path of righteousness for your own name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.